traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A few weeks ago, we were getting ready to interview Matthew Paris. Now, Matthew, you might remember from episode two, is a man who calls Harvey Proctor his difficult friend. He's a former Tory MP from the same era, also gay, so he's lived all his life around and alongside the questions we're teasing away at in this podcast. It just seems to me, as a sort of piece of public brutality, it's quite quite extraordinary. Um, Matthew and I were chatting as we were getting ready to record, and he put his finger on something really important. Yeah, he never helped himself, but that doesn't make it right. (laughs) Now, I guess the obvious thing to say is, in theory, you shouldn't have to help yourself. You shouldn't have to help yourself not be stung by a newspaper, like Harvey Proctor was by the Sunday People in 1986. You shouldn't have to help yourself not to be a victim of abusive policing, the kind Harvey Proctor endured through Operation Midland in 2015. But the lesson of Harvey Proctor's life, what we've heard of it so far anyway, is that maybe you do have to help yourself a bit. Now, in a way, but not in that way, Harvey Proctor did help himself. He helped himself from the sort of buffet of unsavoury, racist comfort food that Enoch Powell was serving up. And all through the 80s, he campaigned on a platform that I found, actually I find, really hard to stomach. A lot of people would go further. They'd say it was despicable. It did harm. And as we'll hear in this episode, he hasn't changed his mind on a lot of it. But is that enough to put Harvey Proctor beyond the protections the rest of us would scream and shout if we were denied? Is there a kind of bargain for outcasts or would-be outcasts? You can say those unsayable things and think those unthinkable thoughts, and we'll tell you that you've got the right to do that. We might even vote for you if you do. But that safety net, which is there for people who don't go too far? Yeah, we've taken that away. I'm Kerry Thomas, and this is the fourth and final episode of Pariah from Tortoise Studios. If you've taken a break after listening to episode three, here's a sort of previously on pariah moment. We've charted Harvey Proctor's life through a rise and two falls. An MP who became notorious for his extreme views on immigration and was taken out by a tabloid newspaper gay sexting in 1987. And then went through a second shattering scandal in 2015 when Carl Beach accused him of three paedophile murders and the police running Operation Midland said the allegations were credible and true. We've gone over the mechanics of how, in each case, media coverage forced the police to act, and how the reputation Harvey Proctor gained in the 80s from hiring people for sex fed into him being an easy name for Carl Beach to drop into the VIP paedophile ring list. And we've looked at how past failings to take child sex abuse seriously enough by both media and police caused an overreaction in 2015, 
as a way to prove they'd learned from the Jimmy Savile scandal. At the end of the last episode, Operation Midland had collapsed and Carl Beach was in jail for perverting the course of justice, fraud and child sex abuse. And we were left wondering not what had just happened, but why. That's the job ahead of us now. I mentioned back in episode one that Harvey Proctor had written an autobiography which was really striking because of the lack of curiosity I thought he showed about himself. He's not one of life's natural navel-gazers, but he does have his moments. Just trying to understand whether, looking back, you think, if I'd done that differently, then maybe that wouldn't have been so bad. Well, in 1987, after 1987, night after night... I would rerun in my mind, almost like videotapes, how I got to the position of 1987, trying to find a way of the end not being as it was, to have a different ending to the story. And night after night, my innermost thoughts, for months, and then less but still continuing for years afterwards as to how I could have done things differently so that the result was different so I could continue being a member of Parliament. And I actually never found a reel that turned out that way. So it's not for the want of self-analysis of trying to find a way of doing it differently. It is what it is. And there are compartmentalised parts of my life. But as a whole, yes, the extraordinary thing is the merging and the mixture of the parts of my life. As I say, it's unfortunate for somebody to go through one scandal but in my case, to go through two pretty big ones and pretty public ones um, is even for me extraordinary. I'm going to bring Alistair Jackson back in here. Now, Al, you weren't with me that time when I talked to Harvey Proctor, but how have you found it? When you've tried to get him to make sense of what he calls the merging and mixing of different parts of his life and how that's put him centre stage in those two big scandals? I mean, the first thing I'd say is he's not someone who's who ducks a question in all the times I've met him he's and given some of the treatment he's had from from the media over the years you could perhaps forgive him if he did but he's he's met everything I've asked him head on like you know that time when he admitted paying uh, for sex to me when he when he said to you he'd not even thought about sex even with himself until he was 23 you know deep deeply personal stuff but he answers it regardless what's all the more surprising is that that comes combined with how emotional he is. You know, he answers stuff that he knows will leave him in pieces. I've, I don't think I've met an interviewee who so easily gets emotional and, and so quickly. And it's not something you'd necessarily expect from Harvey Proctor when you meet him. You know, that buttoned-up former Tory MP is actually quite a contradiction to how he becomes when you interview him. But I would say that taking on questions from the likes of you and me, regardless of that pain, is one thing. But I've found that it doesn't really extend to Harvey Proctor asking questions of himself you know the self-analysis part of that might be because he thinks he doesn't need to he thinks these allegations certainly the most recent ones he's got nothing to ask questions of himself about they were they were made up but I suspect it might simply be that it's just too 
difficult for him to go there. So Al and I went to see Matthew Paris. And if you ever set about trying to create a not Harvey Proctor, Matthew would be a good first stab. He's open and easy company, completely comfortable in his skin, where Harvey Proctor is more sort of tightly wound and reserved. I think the lessons of Harvey Proctor's story are that we are very prone as a society uh, to pile on to somebody, to victimise them, to demonise them. And having decided we're going to do it, we, we simply don't let go. And it can be almost arbitrary whom we choose to, to make a, a, a boo figure. There is usually something about the individual that has, in a sense, asked for it. Um, Harvey didn't help himself in, in lots of ways, but there's almost never anything about them that deserves what came. And we need to look very carefully, especially now in, in the age of social media. Harvey would have been absolutely destroyed by the, the social media if, if, if they had existed at the time. We need to look very hard at this sort of um, mob violence that can take place and of, of, of which Harvey is a very conspicuous example. Yeah. You mentioned before that you said he, he didn't help himself. And I can see looking at him that, of course, homophobia must have played a critical role in what happened to him. He probably didn't help himself because his political views probably opened up another flank of vulnerability as well. So he gave two different catchments of people um, a chance to, to demonise him. But what, what did you have in mind when you said that he hadn't helped himself? He was completely unclubbable. Harvey would never come and join you at a table or go in for a drink with people, as far as I know. Um, he, he never opened up to anybody. He never confided in anybody. He was a cat that walked entirely alone. But some of his political remarks made you wonder where he was on the political spectrum. Uh, at that time, the I think it was the National Front were a, a great bogey organisation as far as the the public and the press, liberal opinion, were concerned. And Harvey, so far as I know, never flirted with the National Front, had nothing to do with the National Front and would not have been part of that movement. But but he would say the kind of things that you would sometimes hear from them and, and people didn't like it. So that was the scenery, that was the backdrop as Harvey Proctor walked onto the stage back in the day to make himself famous campaigning on immigration. Since 1979, the figure is over 130,000. Of course, Mr Chairman, we congratulate my parliamentary and ministerial colleague, Mr David Waddington, on having reduced the 1982 figure to just over 30,000 the lowest level since official statistics were compiled. But it, it, it still implies on present trends in the next decade, a further quarter to a third of a million. I believe it to be in the best interests of black and white alike to say enough is enough. 
What was it about immigration that made you feel so strongly about it? I think it was the logic of it. The logic that a small country as the United Kingdom was and is, a country more densely populated than India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, would you believe, could not physically take the large numbers of people that were coming in year after year after year. And at the same time, politicians, often Labour ones, although I'm not making a party political point here, were criticising lack of housing, lack of schools, lack of social provision, and yet could not see the connection that it was all about numbers. But in the end, you were wrong, weren't you? We could take them. I'll leave others to judge whether I was right or wrong. Um, There are some opinions on which I've revised my opinion, but not that one. Uh, I believe with Enoch, I think, uh, that you've seen nothing yet. And that the consequences of that migration will be with us now for years to come. There is one hope, I think, and that is mixed marriages. And there may come a time when mixed marriages and the mixing of peoples at that close family level will eradicate the fears that I still have now of conflict on a racial basis that I would have no truck with, don't support, don't advocate at all, but which I fear might come. But, I think it hasn't, already, my point I, is it hasn't I, happened, has it? Well, Enoch, in 1968, Enoch said in 15 years, you know, he reported the views it, of, that it, the black man it, will have the whip hand yes, in 15 no, years. That yes, didn't happen. No, He no, predicted it, race riots because right. he was looking across the United States and seeing those. Yes. We haven't really had those. Well, we've had some. We've had a few. And, but and, I, have to, and I have to say, if I... Uh, have an argument with the media that sometimes the media do not immediately place race at the basis of a riot when it obviously appears on the surface to be so. But, but, but you know, we're sitting here now 53 years after the Rivers of Blood speech where, as you say, Enoch Powell is making warnings which are similar to the ones you're making now, the worst is still to come. Surely those 53 years have to count for something and if we haven't well, had... Well, they do and... In in the sense where they count for something is that I believe there have been progress on mixed marriages. I think there are more mixed marriages now. And in Enoch's day, it was unclear, I think, uh, when Enoch was making that speech, the extent to which there would be cross um, marriages, but which which I support. But the risk to you in making that argument is that mixed marriages takes you dangerously into territory of colour, doesn't it? That you say you're not racially prejudiced. But what, I, I, what, what mixed marriages do is get rid no, of the colour problem because well, we you know we're, we're but, all become a bit more alike. But 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 it's blindness not to realise that other people can take colour into account. Because I'm saying that I don't 
doesn't mean to say that I can absolve myself of the responsibility. It's not me, it's them. You can't keep saying, I'm not the problem here, I'm not prejudiced, I don't operate on the basis of colour, I'm worried that other people might. Right, well, no one has ever accused me of being colour prejudiced or racialist in my personal dealings. They have criticised what I've said... And I have to say that I haven't had such a long conversation on immigration uh, and uh, racial matters for years and years and years, as we're having today. Uh, And so I'm having to think things through as as we talk. And and, and some things I think probably were wrong. I I think what was wrong, if any feelings came about, that there was going to be one horrendous cataclysmic civil war. I think that is wrong. And you, and you thought that was possible? I, I, think, I think Enoch certainly did. I, I think I was influenced by his opinion at the time that potentially that could happen. But I'm trying to sort of both place myself now and also try and place myself what it was like when I was making speeches uh, on these matters. But I, I don't have a constituency to represent. I do, I'm not representing anyone other than my own view. I'm not going out there and making political speeches. Um, uh, but you're asking me a question and I'm, I'm giving you an answer to the best of my ability. Um, some of these questions have been asked for the first time for many, many years. Understood, yeah. But I'm trying my best. To, no, to, and it is. I, I'm trying my best to articulate them and, and, and not to upset you with my views or to upset you in the sense that I haven't changed some of the views that you might have thought might have been appropriate to change. There's truth, of course, in what Harvey Proctor says at the end there. He's not out on the campaign trail making speeches these days. I'm talking to a man who put his views on immigration in the fridge when he stopped being an MP in 1987 and he's only taken them out now to warm them up for me. But I suppose I was looking for some help from him so I could talk to my younger self, the one who'd have hated Harvey Proctor, and say, you don't need to hate. People will change, they'll mellow. If nothing else, events will change them. Disgrace, when when it uh, falls on a man, can change him and... Harvey, having seen what it's like to be in complete disgrace, you know, almost the worst kind of disgrace that can occur to you, accused of child sex and all that sort of stuff, I think has probably grown as a person uh, from, from being an outcast. Being cast out teaches you things. And so I would expect Harvey to have mellowed quite a lot as he gets older and, and mellowed partly because of all this, and perhaps become, um, if not a more tolerant, at least a person with a wider view of humanity and of, and of sinfulness and of redemption and all those things. It's quite a good teacher. I, I, I really like people who've been disgraced. Someone who has been disgraced, there's going to be something human, something understanding, something tolerant about them that that, um, you are less likely to find in someone who has never been touched by any sort of scandal.
I don't know if disgrace has changed Harvey Proctor. Two disgraces, actually. I didn't know him when he wasn't disgraced. But he hasn't mellowed on immigration, that's clear. He's not the first person I've met who's defined their purpose, their role in life, as being about something. It's immigration for him. And when you've latched onto that thing, inexplicable as it may seem to the rest of us, I think it can become too important to give up. But the thing Harvey Proctor didn't want his life to be about, his sexuality, well, on that, things do look different to him in the rearview mirror. I think, in retrospect, I was ill-advised to go to Sir David, very good at handling the media and very good at his um, mitigation speech. But I think probably in 1987, I should have pleaded not guilty. This is one of the pivotal moments in Harvey Proctor's life when he was charged with gross indecency after a tabloid sting. Um, here we are, what, um, 30? 34 years later. 34 years later. And probably that's the first time I've admitted publicly that I was wrong. And things might have been different. It's that zombie of a question, the one that will never die. Was he better off fighting for his rights as a gay man? Or when the trial for gross indecency came along in 1987, did he have to accept that the law and society were just the way they were? This said, soonest mended, as he likes to say. But to balance that, my mother was still alive, my brother was alive, and they'd both been through hell um, for a year or more because of the allegations in the media. But perhaps I should have used the trial in 1987 to have stood up for homosexuality, to stand up for the differentiation in the age of consent, 21 as it was in the homosexual case, 16 in the heterosexual case, and certain lacunas in the law surrounding that, which I go into in the book, but I won't hear. Um, and to shine light on the press. And to... And to have battled, uh, um, um, battled through that and basically say what I'm supposed to have done, what I actually did do, whatever else it was, was not gross and was not indecent. Yeah, but, but... And I may have lost in court, but I might have gained in certain segments of public opinion and that might have helped the homosexual cause into the future. I'm, I'm saying that now, all these years later. Um, there has always been, with regard to me and my homosexuality, a balancing judgment amongst those who might be the most supportive of reform of homosexual law at the time, and that is my views on immigration. Yeah. You can't really, I think, question Harvey's courage because in some of the causes he espoused and some of the things that he said about immigration and all the rest, uh, he, he knew that, that he was inviting pariah status and he got pariah status 
within the Conservative Party and outside it. So the man obviously didn't lack courage. I think that Harvey's, um, the way he handled his sexuality, has a more complicated explanation. He was, is, an intensely private person. He really didn't think it was anybody's business who he loved or or what he what what he did um and he was made i think uh, not just angry but a sense of burning defiance that anybody should ask him questions about his private life and i don't believe that was only because he didn't want it to come out i think he is that kind of person of course he had a mother too and um i don't know what she knew but there there may have been reasons why why he didn't want to come out but it wasn't a lack of courage and it was certainly greatly bolstered by uh, his his angry sense of his own uh, privateness and and of the wrongness of other people intruding on it i i may have been naive but it never occurred to me that what happened in my personal life mattered a damn to anyone and what i did in my bedroom should not matter to anybody else as long as it was legal one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Trying to make sense of what Harvey Proctor has been through, there's another idea that keeps coming back to me. Could it be that the first ordeal he went through, that massive intrusion into his sense of privateness, the public shaming in 1987, had been a sort of unconscious collective means to an end, a way to send a message, like a horse's head in his bed on behalf of all of us? Let me put to you a, a sort of counter-argument that I, I'm not, I don't love this argument, but, but let, me, um, let me put it anyway and see what you think. So, so there would be an argument for the way, for what happened to Harvey that that he went out on a limb, that he presented himself in a way as the sort of heir to Enoch Powell. He, he picked up 
with Enoch Powell when Powell had already been thrown out of the Conservative Party or thrown out of the shadow cabinet after after 1968. And as you say, within the Conservative Party, not as a member of the National Front, but, but the Conservative Party, uh, we collectively arguably had decided then that that was the kind of voice that we didn't want in mainstream British political mm. life. And that in the end, by any means necessary, he was thrown out of it. I guess some people listening to this will be saying, look, he got what he deserved. We, 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 we made it clear we didn't want those kind of views in, in, in the central British politics and off he went. Harvey never wanted to just meld in, in, into the, uh, the mass, the background, the mainstream of politics. He, he wanted to stand out. I think in some ways he wanted to be a rogue politician. I don't think he minded being the object of detestation for his political views. I've even wondered sometimes whether he he sought that sort of notoriety. He just ended up in <laughs> being an object of detestation for different reasons. Is there anything in the theory that the establishment, so to speak, just saw him as dangerous and wanted to get him one way or the other? I don't think there is. Uh, there are there was no conspiracy. There never are establishment conspiracies. And the readers of The the People may w- well have um, shared Harvey's views on a number of political issues. Uh, I, I think the attitude of the establishment towards Harvey's political views is, is useful in explaining why no one came to his defence. But I don't think it explains why he was attacked. No, and I wasn't suggesting it was a deliberate policy, mm. but I think you might argue that the system has a way of just ejecting people who, who don't fit, who, who, who step beyond the boundary, and maybe, maybe he somehow fell victim to that. Yeah, the, the political mainstream has its way of, of, of casting off uh, people who um, it thinks are either dangerous or, or a bit nutty. And um, I suppose Harvey sailed a little bit close to the the wind in in that respect, but he would always have been regarded as a bit of a renegade, a right-wing renegade within the Conservative Party, but uh, what happened to him went way beyond that, and I don't really don't believe was intended by anybody. Now, Al, you and I started out setting ourselves the question, what was it about Harvey Proctor which meant he keeps being drawn back into the crosshairs like this? What have you ended up thinking about that? Well, I get you know. I guess after looking at this now for some some time with you, I'd say the starting point for me is a disconnect between the actual detail of what happened to Harvey Proctor in the eighties with that conviction for gross indecency and how it was reported at the time. You know, the process of being convicted for gross indecency has, I would say, put a label on Harvey Proctor that was written in really glaring terms. Not just a gay man, but also a violent man. You know, that label has him down as a nasty man, I would say. And we've discovered through this process, haven't we, the details more complicated. He was deceived as to the age of the men in that tabloid sting by the newspapers. Um, But perhaps... You have to say one of the reasons all that was written so glaringly, so brutally, was how Harvey Proctor was presenting himself. He was the very image of a Tory MP on the far right of the party and also unrepentant, you know, hanging on until a general election 
rather than resigning straight away as soon as the tabloids got hold of him. Pleading guilty, yes, but never quite publicly having to say he'd done anything wrong. But there it was. There was, a, there was a label there, I would say, written very glaringly. And then 30 years or so later, someone like Carl Beach turns up, was looking around for people to accuse as part of this you know, murderous fantasy, and there it is, that label, to be picked up and help him make those allegations. And I, I think that is what, what happened. And I guess thinking about that, here's Carl Beach coming forward with that story that we now know is completely made up. Then here he was pointing at Harvey Proctor and maybe to the police looking into it. That looked like evidence because there were the cuttings from 1987. Yes, and I I would say back in 2015, it went a bit further than that. The police were saying not only was that conviction there to be looked at on the record, there was things in that police file to do with that conviction that went further. You know, they were sort of saying in the background there was an air of violence that went beyond the charges there, you know. So all adding to that picture that this was a man who might have been capable of doing some of the things that Carl Beach was saying. So it kept it going. And to be totally clear and totally fair to Harvey Proctor, none of that is true, is it? We haven't had any evidence that there was anything that was left out of the 87 trial or not tested in court in any way. That, that's right, and I'd go further than that and say that the police themselves, when they eventually looked into that file of evidence, they quickly came to the conclusion it would be a struggle to lay those charges now, and actually there wasn't anything else in that police file pointing to violence, pointing to underage men. So again, you can put that down to unsubstantiated rumours, but unfortunately for Harvey Proctor, you still tend to hear it, particularly from journalists. There was something in the 80s, about Harvey Proctor that was not quite got to the bottom of. I've mentioned a couple of times that when you ask Harvey Proctor to look back over his life and try to make sense of things, he finds it quite hard. And I guess maybe I'd find it hard too if I'd lived the life he's lived. So what about looking forward instead? Age 22, coming out of university with all those dramas and traumas ahead of him. How might it have looked from there? I think it would have been astonishing. I would have felt astonished that my life would have gone in the route that it took. But I think if I'd known I was going to become a member of Parliament, I would have thought other things being equal that I probably would have continued being a Member of Parliament for my entire life. So the idea that um, my personal proclivities, sexual or personal other things, could have got in the way of that would have baffled me, I think, because I was so wound up in politics liked politics, like like principles and policies and developing principles and policies, that that um, I couldn't have believed that my my personality would have got in the way of that. And if I'd said to you at that age that you would become a hate figure and that was what liberated the, these things that had happened to you, allowed the 86, 87... Uh, investigation, court case, I think it allowed um, Operation Midland. 
Could you have imagined becoming a sort of a hate figure on a national scale? No, I, I certainly couldn't believe that, that anyone, that I would have had that, that power, that it's not the, the word isn't ability, but that that, that, that would have happened. No, um, a, a very much quieter life, really. At the start of this podcast, I was wrestling with a way to balance the political choices Harvey Proctor made with the damage we have inflicted on his life. Sitting in front of him, seeing him sometimes crying and always rather broken by his experiences, it's impossible not to be moved and actually shamed by what he's been put through. But you have to try to do the impossible at the same time. You have to hold in your head the ordeals that someone who isn't in the room must have gone through. I mean someone growing up feeling the sharp end of the prejudice that was fed by the debate about immigration and repatriation that Harvey Proctor stoked. Now, honestly, I don't think I'll ever really be able to sit in front of that person, someone who can tell me for sure that their troubles were caused directly by Harvey Proctor. But there's not a doubt in my mind that they're out there somewhere. Words, harsh words, have consequences. Harvey Proctor is probably right that if it hadn't been for the sex scandal, he'd still be an MP now. But when I hear the kinds of things he was saying back in the 80s and his tone of voice, I can't find it in me to muster enough sympathy to feel sorry that he was away from the political scene for those long decades. Hand on heart, I don't think this country would have been improved by him having the microphone from 1987 onwards. But then you get right to it. Harvey's not a murderer. He said that at the beginning of this podcast, and of course it's true. But if he was a murderer, to borrow from Al Capone, I'd want him done for murder, not tax evasion. I'd want him taken out head on, not in a cloak and dagger operation. So, funnily enough, if he's still prepared to take Enoch Powell as his role model, so am I. Enoch Powell was sidelined from British politics but not by skullduggery, not by a tabloid sting. It was done sort of correctly, you could say. He was marginalised in the Conservative Party and then slowly he became quieter, less important. That's what I mean, that's what I'd want for Harvey Proctor too. For him to have ended up in the cottage in the fields by all means. But after we'd carefully dismantled his arguments, shown up the holes in everything he believed, made him irrelevant, not notorious. It's a big ask to take the slow route, particularly if someone is doing damage quickly. But if the rest of us are going to learn anything from Harvey Proctor's life, it's hard to see a better lesson, if we've learned one at all. I don't think we've learned anything from this, and I'm sure it will happen again, and it may be happening now. I mean, we've got all the the boo figures now, and we just tear them to pieces, and... uh, whether or not they deserve to be torn to pieces will will depend on the individual case. But we we won't be checking ourselves and thinking, I must be careful what I I say 
about um, Ghislaine Maxwell because look what happened to Harvey Proctor. No, we'll say, well, uh, Harvey Proctor, yeah, that was wrong. Poor guy. Ghislaine let Maxwell. Oh, no, 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 no. That's different. It's different. always going to be different yeah. with the victim um, that's immediately within our focus. I've done what I've done. I've said what I've said. And I'm here now when I thought I might not be. And you never know how long you've got. Certainly, I'm now 74, so who knows? I, it's always an achievement to wake up in the morning, really. You could <laughs> have you, a third of your life left. Well, you? well, one, one never knows. But, but um, the whole of it has been an extraordinary experience. Uh, and I have experiences that um, are good, and the bad ones I would not wish on my worst enemy. It doesn't seem fair to ask Harvey Proctor to look back without asking myself to do the same. I've been wondering, what would I tell my younger self, the one who cheerfully hated him? In the end, I'd say, be careful with that stuff, hate. You're going to find out that you can't spray it around cheaply. It may not be you, but it'll end up costing someone a lot. And, I'd say, a strange thing is going to happen when you're older. We're going to make it a lot easier to hate. We're going to industrialise the whole business through social media and make it a thousand times more dangerous. And once you let hate out into the world, what I've learned is that a blindness can come upon institutions that matter a lot more than you do. The media and the police will do terrible things if you give them permission. So don't do that. Pariah is produced by Hannah Varrell. The sound design is by Carla Patella. It's written by me, Kerry Thomas, and by Alistair Jackson. Thanks for listening to Pariah. It's made by Tortoise Studios. We make great audio and a whole lot more. You can get daily news emails and we hold open news meetings where you can help us decide what subjects to cover. If you go to tortoisemedia.com slash friend and use my code Kerry50, that's C-E-R-I-5-0, you'll get 50% off your annual membership. And we'd love to have you join us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.